Welcome to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. We speak with writers, thinkers, and newsmakers on the controversial issues of human life and human thriving that impact our daily lives. We are exceptional as creatures in the cosmos, as equal members of the human family, and as ethical beings. Humanize explores some of the fundamental questions. How do we thrive? How do we live well and care for what we've inherited? How do we act responsibly with one another and in the wider world? And how do we conserve the good things of this life for the future? We matter. Our actions matter. Let's get into it. I'm Wesley J. Smith, and this is Humanize. People who can shake hands across deep divides are rare commodities in this age of bitter political and cultural discord. What matters exclusively for too many is winning. Indeed, we live in such strident times that some find it difficult to be friends with people with whom they disagree. In this sense, we have lost the crucial understanding to living in mutual comity that reasonable people can have radically differing opinions. Not so, my guest on this week's episode of Humanize, Professor Robert P. George. George is that rare person these days who sticks to his principles. He is unapologetically pro-life, but he adamantly defends the academic freedom of people who have contrary beliefs, such as Peter Singer. George is a committed Catholic, but he mixes and interacts easily with people of all faiths, and none at all. He is a strong advocate for natural law who respectfully debates those with diametrically opposed opinions about the means for making a good society. Robert P. George is the sixth McCormick Professor of Jurisprudence and Director of the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions at Princeton University, a program founded under his leadership in 2000. George has frequently been a visiting professor at Harvard Law School. Professor George has served as chairman of the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, as well as a presidential appointee of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights and the President's Council on Bioethics. In addition, he has served as the U.S. member of UNESCO's World Commission on the Ethics of Scientific Knowledge and Technology. He was also a judicial fellow at the Supreme Court of the United States, where he received the Justice Tom C. Clark Award. George is a recipient of the U.S. Presidential Citizens Medal, the Honorific Medal for the Defense of Human Rights of the Public of Poland, the Irving Crystal Award of the American Enterprise Institute, the Canterbury Medal of the Beckett Fund for Religious Freedom, and one of Princeton University's highest honors, the President's Award for Distinguished Teaching. George is the author of hundreds of books, essays, and articles. He is also a fingerstyle guitarist and bluegrass banjo player, which I suspect is his most enjoyable accomplishment. (laughs) Robbie, welcome to Humanize. Thank you so much, Wes. It's a pleasure to be on the show. And at the risk of uh, flattering you, I want to say it's an honor as well. I greatly admire the work you've done and the witness you've given, especially your witness to our humanity, uh, to the profound and inherent and equal dignity of each and every member of the human family. I salute you. Well, thank you very much. I always like to ask uh, my guests on the show, 
What attracted you to what you do? I mean, you've reached the highest level of academic achievement. And I'm just curious as to what made you want to enter the high university at the, at the highest levels? Well, Wes, that's going to require me to uh, tell a little bit of my uh, personal story. So uh, Good. if you'd like me to do that, I'll be happy. Absolutely. Well, um, I grew up in the hills of West Virginia. I was born there, brought up there. Uh, both of my grandfathers were coal miners. Uh, they were union men, strong uh, Democrats, great believers in Franklin Delano Roosevelt. He was just a notch below Jesus Christ uh, up there in the Pantheon. <laughs> Uh, of course, they were great believers in the United Mine Workers uh, of America, uh, and they were not very well uh, educated, of course. They were both immigrants, my uh, father's father from Syria, uh, my uh, mother's uh, father from southern Italy. Uh, the reason I'm not in the coal mines, I'm pretty sure, is that uh, World War II happened. <laughs> not that I'm old enough to have been in World War II. But my father was drafted right out of high school, 18 years old, hadn't even finished high school. They later sent his mom and dad a diploma. But he was drafted to uh, uh, serve in World War II at the, uh, uh, toward the end of the war in 1944. Uh, served with great distinction, with valor uh, in uh, Normandy and, and Brittany. Wow. And uh, then when he uh, got home, the world was different. Uh, he had some skills that he otherwise wouldn't have had and uh, opportunities that he otherwise wouldn't have had. So he didn't have to go into the coal mines, and therefore I didn't have to go into the coal mines. Uh, but he was not able to get a college education. That was not one of the opportunities available uh, to him, uh, nor did my mother. So I'm the first in uh, my family uh, to go to college. I bring all this up for this reason, like many whose backgrounds are like my own, like many families uh, like my own. Uh, my parents desired education for their children. They wanted us to have a college education. There were, there were five children in my family, all boys, five boys. They were very tight. We were quite a band roaming those hills of Appalachia, hunting and fishing and playing bluegrass music, as you pointed out. Um, but they valued education primarily as a means of social advancement. Uh, a good education, a college education, uh, meant that you could have a profession, a higher income, uh, greater status in your uh, community. This is what they wanted for their uh, children. And this right. was the understanding of the goals of education that I uh, brought to college when I ended up at Swarthmore College. Uh, there's another story there that I'll spare you how I ended up at uh, that little intellectual powerhouse outside of Philadelphia, Swarthmore College. But when I got there, Wes, I have to tell you, I was not prepared. Uh, I wouldn't trade my boyhood for anything. Uh, it was wonderful. Uh, but I uh, was not prepared by the education, preparatory education I'd received uh, to tackle the rigors of the kind of education that um, Swarthmore uh, offered. So, so, so you had to dig into yourself and create that kind of preparedness during your college experience. I wish I could claim the credit, but the credit belongs really to two professors who perceived in me some serious intellectual curiosity and I think some ability, but recognized that I was struggling. And I was that first year. I didn't know if I would make it. Hmm. Uh, so they, they realized I was struggling. I wasn't doing as well in written exercises, for example, as I should have been doing. And so they took me under their wing. And uh, gosh, once they brought me up to speed, well, I started flying. I loved ideas. I loved thinking. I loved reading the interesting stuff that was assigned in my uh, classes. 
But the most important uh, event happened in my sophomore year when I'd gotten my sea legs. And uh, another professor, not one of those first two, another professor was uh, teaching a course in political theory. It was a basic survey course in political theory. It began with uh, the, the, the uh, ancient Greek philosophers and took us all the way forward to John Rawls, the contemporary, at that time, contemporary leading liberal political uh, philosopher. And in the course, early on in the course, uh, our professor assigned us Plato's Gorgias. Now, in that dialogue, Plato has his hero, uh, Socrates, his own mentor, lead his interlocutor through some intellectual exercises that cause the reader, it certainly caused me to see, as if a light bulb went off over my head, Wes, caused me to see that the most fundamental and valuable thing about knowledge the real reason to pursue knowledge was the value of truth and truth seeking for its own sake. I had somehow imbibed a purely instrumental view of learning. You, you, you want to learn, you want to, you want to have a college education, you want to get a fancy degree because that will enable you to rise in the world, have a bigger income, have a profession, have greater social stature. And college does those things for people. It's wonderful. Those are not bad things as long as you use them for good purposes, but they're instrumental things. They're not good in themselves. They're things that are good if you use them for good. But what I learned from Plato, from reading that dialogue, Gorgias, is that there are some things that are not merely instrumentally valuable, but are intrinsically valuable. And one of those is truth, is knowledge of truth. And that caused me to fall in love with truth for its own sake and made me a truth seeker and put me on the path to my vocation as a scholar and teacher. Wes, had you asked me as a freshman or even as a sophomore, uh, uh, had you said to me, you know what, we've got a, we've got a crystal ball. We can see the future and you are going to be a college professor. I would have laughed at you and said, you need a new crystal ball. Your crystal ball is way off. I didn't have it in my mind in the foggiest to be a college professor. And yet when I trace back the events that led to my discerning this vocation to teaching and scholarship, um, it takes me right back to that engagement with Plato, sitting in the library at Swarthmore College, reading that dialogue and having the light bulb go off and understanding the value of knowledge, the real value of knowledge, the intrinsic value of knowledge for the first time. And it also made me, Wes, understand the importance of thinking for oneself. Yeah. I had, uh, I had most of what I believed at that time. I believed because I thought it's what sophisticated people were supposed to believe. It's what the people I looked up to and wanted to be like believed. It was what people I regarded as members of my tribe believed or my group or my clan or my class. Uh, and Plato made me give all that up too. No more tribalism, Plato in effect says. You've got to think for yourself. You're trying to talk about wrong. reaching across the millennia. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's and amazing. Course, I take all this to my own students. It informs everything I do. Uh, it, it, would never occur to me to suppose that my job is to tell my students what to think. I have strong views about this. As you know, I, I'm an activist in the public square in that other dimension of my life. I advocate for things I believe in, like the belief we share in the sanctity of human life. I'm, a, as you know, a strong advocate for those things, but it's not my job. And it wouldn't dawn on me to think it's my job to tell my students what to think. No, my job is to do what my teachers did for me, what Plato does for all of us. And that is to encourage and empower us to think more deeply, 
more critically, including self-critically, and for oneself. That's what a teacher does. That's what a professor does. That's the Socratic way of carrying out the vocation of a teacher and a scholar, and it's what I try to do. And, and I can see the uh, hear the enthusiasm and and deep um, uh, satisfaction about that in your voice as as we do, as we talk. But it strikes me that you're almost uh, becoming a uh, endangered species on the campus today. Uh, I I don't regularly you know walk around on campuses. I get invited to speak there sometimes, but uh, I know that um, it, it's becoming much more difficult to find. Uh, universities where your approach is deeply valued and promoted? I'm afraid that's right. I'm very sorry to say it. Um, the academic world is in pretty dreadful shape right now. And at the root of it are the problems that you're really pointing to. Groupthink, intellectual conformism, tribalism. Uh, of course, there's a particular ideology that is dominant uh, in uh, university circles today and more broadly in our intellectual culture, uh, secular progressive ideology, uh, sometimes that variant of secular progressive ideology that we call wokeism. Um, and it's suffocating and it's suffocating. And I hate to see its consequences for our young men and women, causing them to uh, fall into groupthink. Uh, and that deprives them of an, of an education. Uh, oh, that's a very important point. Yeah. Falling into groupthink deprives them of an education. Exactly right. To, to be educated, your mind has to be opened. If your mind is closed, you cannot receive an education. You cannot be educated. You, you have to be thinking for yourself. If you're letting someone else think for you, if you're, if you're letting the group think for you, there's no way we can educate you. Uh, too many teachers uh, have, a, have an understanding of their role very different from mine, very different from... Plato's or Socrates, they think it's their job to tell students what to think. And so what they do is indoctrinate students. And Wes, indoctrination is not only not education, it is the very antithesis of education. In what I sense? I would rather my students be ignorant than be indoctrinated. If they're ignorant, at least at some point down the line, we've got a chance to educate them. But if they're indoctrinated, you've got a closed mind. And then you have another step before you can even begin the educational process. You have to pry open that, uh, that mind. So teachers who indoctrinate their students, um, uh, they do them an enormous disservice. Not only do they not do them any good, they do them enormous harm. So we have to push back against this in our intellectual life and in our uh, academic institutions. We have to reestablish as the norm, true education and not indoctrination. And we have to break our students out of this groupthink. And even those who are not in groupthink, Wes, to show you how bad the situation is, even those who are willing to think for themselves are very, very, very often unwilling to say what they think. Well, they because engaging, there's a consequence. Right. They're engaging in self-censorship. Yeah. Uh, self-censorship is the consequence of the cancellation uh, culture. Students are terrified that they'll be called a bad name, a racist, a bigot, something like that, a uh, transphobe uh, on social media, and that that will uh, damage their personal lives and their friendships and so forth, but also their future educational opportunities and their professional futures. This is very, very bad. So even if the professors do the right thing, you have students who are afraid of their fellow students, afraid that their fellow students will harm them in some way, damage their futures, if they have the temerity 
to express a dissenting opinion. I have to say, uh, some of the most courageous people I've met uh, in terms of, you know, not in terms of military, but in terms of just living in our civilian and civic life, have are pro-life college students. Uh, when, when I go on campuses and if I meet pro-life college students, I mean, they're beleaguered by um, not only the fellow students, but often they're harassed by administration, yeah. and yet they stand strong. I remember going to one, uh, to speak at one very prominent university on the East Coast, I won't name it, where some pro-life students had been putting out crosses on the grass as a, as a form of protest, and one of them, uh, a, a, another woman approached her and just punched her, cold-cocked her, and the university refused to do anything about it. Oh, and, right. I, you know, it's, it's just an astonishing thing to watch these young people. It doesn't even matter whether you believe in pro-life or not, but these are people who are pursuing truth as they see it in the truth as a capital T, as you discussed, and are willing to stand up for it. It's very easy to go along with the crowd and, uh, and uh, join a, a mass demonstration, whether you believe it or not, <laughs> because no one's going to criticize you. But when you're standing as the minority, uh, that, that's very tough. But that's, that's, the, um, that's what we kind of hope that most of us eventually, if it comes to that, have that ability to have the courage to stand for what's right in that difficult circumstance. Amen. You know, Wes, sometimes uh, people ask me, why are you so optimistic? You're there in the belly of the beast I've uh, asked in the you that. academic world. Why are you so optimistic? <laughs> well, the first thing I have to do, I hear recall uh, my dear old late uh, beloved friend, Richard Newhouse, who made the same point. First, I have to uh, instruct them that it's not optimism you're seeing. It may look like optimism. It's hope. And uh, hope is a very different thing. Hope is a virtue. Optimism is not a virtue. Yeah. Hope is an active thing. Um, but of course, then the question is, why am I hopeful? I'll tell you why I'm hopeful. I'm inspired by those courageous students you're talking about. I get to work with them, to teach them, to talk with them every day, every day, because we've got, they're a minority, but we've got these outstanding at Princeton. They also happen to be brilliant. Uh, our, our admissions office supplies us every year with <laughs> this pool of brilliant kids and courageous students who really, really will stand up for what they believe in and take the slings that arrow and arrows that come. Uh, so when I see these brilliant and uh, courageous kids, how can I not be hopeful? They really do inspire me. They, they keep me going. And, and, and they're two different kinds. They're, they're the kinds who are like me, um, who uh, temperamentally, just can't hide. They can't keep their mouths shut. If they, if they believe something, they they their personalities require that they say it. That's me. I'm like that. I couldn't I couldn't keep my mouth shut or censor myself if I had to. You know, I didn't get the fear gene. I'm I'm, I'm not afraid, uh, but I'm not courageous. But the courageous people are the people who are afraid, and this is the second kind of group. They are afraid, and I have a lot of students who are like this. They really genuinely are afraid, and yet they muster the courage. There's where courage comes in to overcome the fear. I don't have to be courageous because I'm not afraid. These kids who are super inspiring are the ones who are dreading going out there and taking the abuse that they will take for standing up for what they believe in, and yet they muster the resources, the courage to stand up and do it anyway. I mean, these kids really make my day. I admire them so much. 
Oh, that's just that's just terrific. Tell us about the James Madison program that you founded. Well, yes, uh, the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions was founded at uh, Princeton in uh, the millennial year, 2000, July 4th, the millennial uh, year. I had uh, the year before uh, been elevated to that um, endowed chair at Princeton that you mentioned, the McCormick uh, Professor of Jurisprudence that had previously been held by a very distinguished uh, set of people, um, including um, Edward S. Corwin, who was the greatest constitutional scholar of the um, uh, sort of middle part of the 20th century, and before him, uh, Woodrow Wilson. Uh, And so uh, that gave me the opportunity, the sort of standing in the university to be able to propose that we do something to build on the great tradition of research and teaching in the areas of public law and jurisprudence, in civic education, uh, that uh, uh, that we had to to, to increase it, to, to build on it. And so I uh, went around and uh, raised a bit of money. I'd never done that before in my life, Wes. I had to raise some money. I raised some money from uh, <laughs> friends and um, uh, alumni of Princeton and foundations. Uh, and came to the university with a proposal to begin a program in civic education that would be second to none, that would show uh, other universities and colleges around the country how to do it. Everyone at the time and today uh, laments the poor quality overall of civic education. Are, are so many of our students, even our students at top institutions, even our students with outstanding academic records, don't know basic facts of history. They mm. don't know the basic structure of the Constitution. They don't know how our political system is uh, supposed to supposed to work. Uh, people were lamenting that as they continue to do today, and I propose to do something about it at least with our students at at Princeton. And uh, to its credit, the university, under the presidency of Harold Shapiro and his provost um, uh, Jeremiah Ostreicher, very distinguished astrophysicist, uh, approved our creating uh, the Madison program. And now we've grown into a big and influential force on campus. And we're being copied, which I'm delighted about. Uh, I, I don't want to be unique. I want to be the opposite of unique. Uh, we're being copied at colleges and universities um, uh, around the country. And what we do is provide a place where genuine freedom of thought, freedom of inquiry, freedom of discussion, freedom of expression takes place. Everything's and, on the and, table. In the James Madison program, everything is on the table. You want to defend Marxism? You can defend Marxism. Uh, you want to defend Peter Singer's views? Uh, about uh, human life or animal rights or whatever, you can defend them. Uh, We uh, reject the cancel culture. Uh, We reject the imposition of ideas. We ask only for this, that you conduct yourself with decorum and civility. You don't call other people names. That's not, that's not arguing. Calling someone a name is, is not making an argument. You don't call people names. Uh, You exercise basic civility. Uh, and number two, that you do business in the proper currency of intellectual discourse, whatever your position is, whether it happens to be in line with mine or directly contrary to mine, that you do business in the proper currency of intellectual discourse. Intellectual discourse has a currency in the same way that we have a monetary currency in the economic sphere. In, in the United States, it's dollars and cents. In, in uh, Britain, it's pounds and pence. Well, in intellectual discourse, the currency is reasons, arguments, and evidence. No matter what your view is, you're allowed to advocate it fully, vigorously, so long as you make arguments, give reasons, provide evidence. We're not interested in people just emoting. We're certainly not interested in people shouting, calling each other's uh, other names. We're also absolutely against shutting anybody down 
or immunizing yeah. any view, no matter how much I or anyone else cherishes it, immunizing any view from critique. It seems to me that the truth shouldn't need and doesn't need immunization or vaccination or protection against criticism. The truth has its own power and luminosity. So yeah, yeah, I, I, if, if you've I, got I a view, if you're you. right about it, you should be able to give the reasons, give persuasive reasons why you're right about and it. And not That's cast aspersions on motives of those with whom you disagree. 100% right. Because we see that an awful lot in society. Well, you you don't like this because you're racist, you know, or you don't like this because you hate gay people, or or uh, you don't like this because you hate Catholics. I mean, that's not that's not a a proper way of discussing because it shuts down discourse. That's exactly right. You notice that it's not the proper currency. That's that's yep. uh, counterfeit money. That's the equivalent of counterfeit <laughs> money. Yeah, I like that. Uh, just as one example, and then we'll move on. Uh, you recently invited Justice Stephen Breyer to speak, even though you profoundly disagree with his jurisprudence. Well, yes, and uh, I, I was delighted to do that. Uh, it's an, there's an interesting story there. Uh, I hadn't met Justice uh, Breyer. I know uh, several of the Supreme Court justices, but I hadn't met Justice Breyer uh, until I was invited by Harvard uh, to be one of the, I think, two uh, commentators on a very distinguished, prestigious set of lectures, he was invited to give it uh, at uh, at Harvard called the Tanner Lectures. They're, they're given at Harvard and Princeton and three or four other uh, universities. And it was Harvard's turn to give them. They invited Justice Breyer. And I was invited uh, uh, to be one of the uh, commentators. And I spent a few days up at Harvard um, providing my commentaries on his lectures and also getting to socialize with him a bit. And, and we hit it off personally very well. We do disagree about constitutional interpretation and, and, and politics, which was why I suppose I was chosen and a bully for him for, for wanting, or at least allowing them to uh, have a critic like me as his respondent. So we had very lively, I thought, uh, illuminating conversations at, at Harvard. And uh, as we were parting, I said, well, you know, I'd love to have you come down to Princeton. I know you're very busy. You're Supreme Court justice. It's, you, you get a million uh, invitations and you can only accept a very, very small fraction of them. But I'd love to come down and could we have a public conversation here, sort of like what we're doing uh, now at Harvard? And he said, I'd be delighted to do that. And uh, he came down and uh, there there we had a great conversation. And, and he told me a most interesting uh, story uh, Wes, you're probably familiar with the uh, shameful incident in our national history, a real blot on the Supreme Court of the United States, uh, when uh, the Roosevelt administration uh, in, interned Japanese uh, Americans and Japanese uh, visitors who were guilty of no crimes, giving them no due process, taking their property, taking them from their homes during World War II. Uh, it's a shameful episode uh, the Supreme Court validated it in a case called Korematsu against the United States. Nobody looks back on that favorably these days. <laughs> Most everybody can see this really was disgraceful treatment. Um, and I knew, of course, that it was the Roosevelt administration that had uh, done this, the Roosevelt Democrat Congress that had uh, done it. And of course, I knew because of my field of constitutional interpretation that um, three of the most uh, famous liberal uh, Roosevelt import, uh, appointee justices had voted to uphold this policy. Justice William O. Douglas, uh, mm. Justice uh, 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 Felix Frankfurter, and Justice Hugo Black. And so we were talking about this 
during the conversation. And uh, he, that is Justice Breyer, reminded me of two additional facts, things that people in the progressive movement probably don't want to reflect on too much, two additional facts that I didn't know. Number one, the internments were requested by who? Earl Warren. Uh, Earl Warren. Wow. Future Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, the future famous what, liberal justice. What was his position at that time? Attorney General of California. He wow. requested that the federal government, the Roosevelt administration, intern the Japanese Americans with no due process. And now are you ready for the second fact, Wes, that Justice Breyer, to his credit, pointed out to me. He said, and you know, very, very few Americans in public life, very few leaders, very few people with any kind of important positions opposed the internment of the Japanese. But you know who did? I have no idea. FBI Director J. J. Edgar, Edgar Hoover. Hoover. J. That's Edgar astonishing. Hoover. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, oh, most progressives don't want to talk about any of that. But here, Justice Breyer shows you what a good man he is. Uh, you know, this was this was a black mark on his team. Uh, uh, J- Justice Breyer was the one pointing out to me these uh, these embarrassing facts. But, and that illustrates the importance, I think, of, of having these dynamic interactions among people who disagree in good faith, as you and Justice Breyer do. And and the thing that makes me sad is I was listening to thinking, can I can you imagine a liberal uh, equivalent institution inviting Justice Clarence Thomas to speak? I think he wouldn't be allowed on campus. There'd be fires in in uh, in the dorms, you know. You know, it's interesting that you point that out, and I'm afraid you're right, and I'm sorry to have to say it, uh, but. Um, I do a lot of work with my dear beloved uh, friend and teaching partner, Cornell West. And, and right, Cornell and I really disagree. That. I mean, he's further to the left than, than Justice Breyer. So we're really at opposite positions on right. a lot of political issues. Although we uh, share some things as well. I mean, we, we share a deep Christian faith. We, we share a real commitment to basic civil liberties, including academic freedom. I can tell you in teaching with Brother Cornell, uh, he does not do indoctrination quite the opposite. He's a genuine teacher. He doesn't tell students what to think. He encourages them to think deeply and for themselves. But in any event, I tell this story. Uh, We were visiting as guests. We were invited by the American Enterprise Institute, AEI, uh, to give a uh, hold a public discussion uh, in their beautiful then new facility up near DuPont Circle uh, in Washington, D.C. And my goodness, the people at AEI not only received me royally, they received um, uh, Cornell most, most graciously. They were obviously thrilled to have him there. Uh, they honored him, uh, treated him with the greatest respect. And of course, he was he was pleased by that and very grateful. And we had a great day there. And as we were leaving the building at the end of the day, he turned to me and he said, you know, Brother Robbie, I have to say, I don't think if we were at an institution on the other side of the political spectrum that you would be treated with the generosity of spirit uh, that uh, AEI treated me with here. And I'm afraid that was true. And it, it's a, it's really a shame. And, and it's something that I think that people who are on the left side, or as I call it, the port side of the ship, they're going to have to begin to address because in the end, I, I think your statement earlier is correct that, you know, the truth and luminosity will will out, and and you, when you try to stifle it, eventually there's going to be an explosion of some sort, and you'll be the loser. Yeah. 
I do believe truth has a luminosity. And if we just uh, get out of the way of the light, that light will shine through. What, what we have to do is really pursue it in a pure hearted way, recognizing, of course, that we're fallible. We're going to miss it. Um, uh, we're going get, to get it only partially right at best. I mean, sometimes we're going to yeah. be wrong, which is why I think it's very important not only to keep an open mind while still being a person of conviction, but keep an open mind, uh, but also to absolutely ensure that those who are critical of us and of our positions have an opportunity to be heard and that we, in fact, listen to them. Not, not just sit politely to let them speak. Genuinely listen. Try to learn. And ponder what they say. I've learned so much from Cornell. Yeah. You know, Cornell's a brilliant man. And, uh, you know, we disagree about some very important things. I mean, he's the honorary chairman of Democratic Socialists of America. And uh, I take a rather <laughs> dim view of socialism, to say the least. And yet I've learned important things in these conversations with Cornell. One deepens one's understanding. Even if you don't change this or that policy position, it just so enriches and deepens your understanding to engage with somebody on the other side who's a serious truth seeker, as Cornell is, and who uh, is intelligent and has thought his way into his positions and is a person of goodwill. Yeah, and it requires a certain humility, which we all need um, to be able to understand we don't have monopolies on wisdom. That's right. You know, I do this sometimes with um, audiences, especially student audiences. I, I ask the question, okay, now, um, which of you out there, raise your hand, please, which of you is infallible? <laughs> I'm just hoping the Pope's not there, right? So which of you right. is infallible? <laughs> and of course, no hands go up. <laughs> so I say, okay, so I conclude that all of you regard yourselves as fallible. Yes, of course they do. Uh, and that's true not only of the people in this room, that's true of everybody on earth, everybody who ever has been, right? Everybody is fallible. We can all make mistakes. As a matter of fact, anybody at any time in any life holds some beliefs in his or her head that are false, right? Is there anybody who would say, I at this moment hold no false beliefs in my head? No sane person would say that. Everybody knows they have some false beliefs. So I raise the question, well, why would you hold false beliefs in your head? If you know you have false beliefs in your head, why don't you swap them out, get rid of them, replace them with true beliefs? And of course, the answer is, well, Professor George, because we don't know which ones are the false ones. And I say, yes, bingo, you don't. Now, how can we figure out which ones are the false ones? It's only going to be possible if we allow all our beliefs to be challenged, because any of them might be false. Even those that we cherish most, those deeply held beliefs, those identity-forming beliefs can be false. And if they are false, if we're ever going to find out that they're false, it's got to be because we're open to criticism, open to challenge. And there you have a knockdown argument for freedom of speech, freedom of inquiry, yeah. freedom of discussion. Yeah, and, for my and own people sake, if I want to be on the side of truth, I need to not shut you down if you disagree with me. You, I have to uh, permit you to. I have to encourage you to challenge me. I think there's a certain uh, fear that some people have um, that if their deepest held beliefs come into doubt, that it will kind of shatter their their whole world. And and I think that may be one reason why people are reluctant to engage in that deep process you just described. Yeah, you yourself have had a religious conversion experience. Um, you know how powerful that is. It, it, you're a different person in a certain sense, right? Those beliefs are so important, so constitutive of our personalities. You're a little different than you were before. 
our, our fundamental beliefs affect who we are. They're, they're, that's why I call those kinds of beliefs identity forming or identity shaping beliefs. And it's a scary thing. It's a scary thing to think if I open my mind, I might be persuaded that things that make me who I am are going to change and I will not be the same person. That's really frightening. And it takes courage. So you, you need these two virtues. The one you put your finger on already, Wes, intellectual humility. And number two, you need the courage to genuinely allow yourself to be challenged. That's why I say, you know, what we need is a vaccine against groupthink. We don't need a vaccine protecting any views that we hold and think are true. Any views that yeah. we hold and think are true should be subject to challenge. Let's explore any limits that might exist with regard to this. And I'm, I'm getting to Peter Singer. You and I have had some public disagreements about Peter Singer and the proper reaction to him. Um, I, I have to admit, and you know, you had me speaking there once. I was very shocked that Princeton brought Peter Singer from Australia. Uh, for, for listeners who may not know, Peter Singer is probably the world's uh, foremost um, proponent for the morality or the propriety of infanticide. Uh, and uh, he has, on many occasions, uh, he doesn't focus on it as much now because it causes some trouble for him, but he has on many occasions actually said things like if a, a Down syndrome child is born and the parents think that, uh, you know, he's a utilitarian, the parents think that the suffering for the family and for the child will be more than the benefit for the child, that it's okay to kill the baby. And, and uh, when Peter Singer was brought to Princeton, there were very angry demonstrations by disability rights activists about that appointment. And, and uh, Professor George Robbie, you, you defended, uh, uh, based on what we've dis discussed, you know, because of academic freedom, Peter Singer's position. But is there a, is there a line that can be drawn or should be drawn, not in terms of freedom of speech, but in terms of, you know, the kind of um, authority that teaching at Princeton brings, the kind of respectability that that by that imprimatur accords, is there a line where we say, okay, you know, I, I, this is just a this is just a place that's too far for us to say is acceptable within decent uh, conversation. I thought it. That line was with Peter Singer because of his infanticide and his invidious distinctions among human beings. What do you think about that? No, I don't think there is a line. I, okay. I know that's scandalous to a lot of uh, people. I, I've always thought of myself and regarded myself and been regarded by people as conservative, but be, and I am conservative. I think of myself as conservative. Uh, but um, it's this view of mine uh, that there is no line. Uh, that uh, has prompted at least one of my critics uh, uh, on the conservative side to call me the last true liberal. <laughs> because, of course, most <laughs> liberals these days think they want to draw the line very tightly, right? They, uh, there are lots of things they want to exclude uh, from uh, uh, the classroom or from the university. and Lots of people they want to exclude from the university because of their particular uh, positions. But I'm afraid my view, uh, Wes, is that... Um, I think the only standards are the standards of intellectual, the only proper standards to apply 
Uh, now, I, there, I can qualify this in some ways with respect to certain sorts of institutions because of their institutional commitments. But if you're going to be a, a university like Princeton University or the University of Chicago or Ohio State or these secular universities or non-sectarian universities, then I think the only standards are intellectual excellence. Um, are you doing business in the proper currency of intellectual discourse? Are you giving reasons, providing evidence, making arguments? Are the arguments strong? Uh, is the evidence uh, powerful? Uh, might, might, might not actually justify what you claim it justifies, but are you doing work that genuinely makes people who disagree with you think and think more deeply? Does it force them to have to think more deeply about what they in fact believe and why they believe it? I would be telling you a lie, Wes, if I said, no, Peter Singer hasn't made me think more deeply. Nope, he has. He has engaging Peter, taking on his arguments, trying to show why they're wrong, which I think I've successfully done, uh, has caused me to think much more deeply about crucial issues than I would otherwise have to do. And Peter's view is even more radical, Wes, than, than you've described it so far. If I can further describe it, you know what I'm about sure. to say. Um, it's not just that he believes that Down syndrome or other so-called defective uh, children may legitimately be uh, killed even after birth. Um, he believes that there's nothing wrong in principle with parents killing any child after birth up to a certain level of um, intellectual attainment until a right, certain because level he of, says they're not a person because he thinks they're not a person. And so when he was asked by the journalist Marvin Olasky, would you have then any objection to us deliberately breeding children to be killed in infancy before they, in your view, became persons so that we could harvest their uh, body parts, their organs or organ primordia for use in medicine to save people who needed uh, uh, organ transplants uh, where you have a shortage. His answer, very bluntly, straightforwardly, without question, his answer to Marvin was, no, I have no objection to that. That is that's, that's now. That, that's very radical, and uh, let me test this a little further. <laughs> okay, uh, keep trying. <laughs> yeah, William Shockley, William Shockley invented the transistor, poet laureate. I'm not poet laureate, I'm sorry, Nobel, uh, Nobel laureate Prize in physics. Winner, yeah. <laughs> yeah, poet laureate. Uh, Nobel Prize winner. Um, brilliant physicist, blatant racist. Um, a would... Princeton ever bring Shockley on knowing his racism, assuming he was alive today? I bet you the answer is no. And B, would Robert George to teach physics? The first question is certainly no. Uh, the, the second question is yes. Uh, oh, I, I, would, I would allow him to be appointed if he uh, qualified on the merits uh, in, in physics. I would, not, uh, I would not block his appointment. Yeah, see, I, I am the last liberal. What if he were in the uh, Center on Human Values, which Peter Singer has, and is teaching more of a philosophy approach as opposed to a hard science approach? Well, here, of course, we're going to have to apply my intellectual quality standards. Now, I believe you can have high intellectual quality in defending views that are extremely bad, like the idea that it's okay to kill newborn children, right? So I've already outed myself on that question. Um I read a little bit of um, some of what Shockley said in his lifetime about race. 
it was not sophisticated. It was not uh, challenging. It did not make you think. Um, uh, no one, I think, uh, who attended to questions of intellectual quality would have credited uh, his, his work on race. His work on physics was a different story. He was a very eminent uh, physicist. But if you had someone who uh, defended positions on race that I disagree with, but did so in a sophisticated way, uh, who, who genuinely made you think, who challenged my beliefs and assumptions in ways that I found difficult to intellectually refute and had to work hard and think hard to get to, yeah, I would allow them to be appointed. I would, I would allow Heidegger to be appointed. Uh, Heidegger, as you know, ended up you know, being a Nazi. Um, yeah. So, well, you, argue, some people regard. I mean, it's not in my school of philosophy. I'm not fond of this general approach. But a lot of a lot of perfectly reasonable people, even people on the left, a lot of people on the left, as a matter of fact, regard Heidegger as the greatest philosopher of the 20th century. I, I can't deny he was a great philosopher. If he, if that's he, very interesting, he and, and as I said in the introduction, you're a man of principle. I'm afraid um, so. I, I, yeah, it's, it's yeah, that can get you in a lot of around. trouble. Yeah, it gets me in trouble. <laughs> As you say, and as yeah. you said, I, you know, I don't have the kind of temperament that allows me to keep my mouth shut and stay out of it. <laughs> Time is fleeting just a little bit here, and I just wanted to, um, since I have you, and you're one of the uh, nation's preeminent experts on natural law, I thought we'd do a, a real quick primer on that sure. uh, for people. Uh, I, I know when a lot of people think of natural law, they think, oh, that's what's in the Bible, but that's not true, is it? No, that's uh, it's not true. Um uh, the probably most uh, powerful um, modern exponent uh, of natural law that's widely known to the public of natural law thinking is Martin Luther King. In his letter from Birmingham jail, he talks about the moral law accessible to reason that's above the merely human law, what we legal philosophers call the positive law, and which provides the standard by which the justice or injustice of the common, I'm sorry, of the human law, the positive law can be assessed. But how do you determine what moral law leads to that end? That's right. So if I can speak now a bit more philosophically, sure. what the natural law is, is the body of norms, including moral norms, and other principles that provide our reasons for acting, especially our more than merely instrumental reasons for acting. That is, our uh, uh, choice, our rational choice to pursue certain ends or purposes, not as means to other things, but as ends in themselves, such as friendship, just for its own sake. Knowledge, intellectual knowledge, just for its own sake. Virtue as its own reward, in other words, just for its own sake. Uh, friendship with God, just for its own sake. Uh, beauty, uh, aesthetic appreciation, just for its own sake. And what moral norms are, according to natural law theory, are determinations or specifications of the integral prescriptivity, the directiveness of all those norms that provide are more than merely instrumental reasons. All those principles that give us reasons for acting that are not reducible to other motivations. So I'm sorry to get into the philosophical weeds there. No, the bottom I think line, you, though, is this, yeah. that there are some things, and indeed the Bible itself teaches us that there are some things that can be known about right and wrong 
even apart from, this is the punchline, even apart from revelation by God in Scripture or through the agency of the church. Uh, St. Paul, Paul in uh, his letter to the Romans, I believe it's the second chapter, uh, talks about a law written on the hearts, even of the Gentiles, that is, the people who don't have the law of Moses, which is sufficient for them to be held accountable for their actions. That's what the natural law is. That is the law that can be grasped, the moral law that can be grasped by natural reason, doesn't rely on revelation. Now, the natural law tradition, going back into the Middle Ages with great figures, thinkers, teachers like Aquinas, and then all the way back to to its sources in Greek and Roman uh, antiquity, with Plato and Aristotle on the Greek side, people like Cicero on the Roman side, uh, the great thinkers of the natural law tradition have never denied that God can reveal things, and Christian and Jewish natural law thinkers have always held that God reveals many things uh, about the moral life. There are some things that uh, can be known by reason, but are reinforced and illuminated by divine revelation. The natural law claim, though, is that even apart from revelation, that is by natural reason or unaided reason, one can nevertheless know basic right and wrong. That's interesting. So you're saying that somebody who's an atheist will say can believe in natural law because they can reason what is right and what is wrong. Exactly so. Exactly so. They can grasp, for example, the intelligible point of friendship and reason to the judgment that betraying a friend is wrong. All right. And and uh, this country, the United States, the, the political philosophy that was really essential in its founding was steeped in natural law. Bingo. How, how, how did that, how did the natural law that you've described impact the people? And it was a philosophical founding. It wasn't, it wasn't a political founding as much in my opinion as a philosophical founding. How did, how did the natural law belief impact our founders and what, um, institutions, for example, or um, theories of uh, freedom that we have in this country came directly out of that uh, school of thought. Yes. Uh, our founders were, uh, to a man, firm believers in natural law and natural rights. Uh, probably the greatest of our presidents, perhaps the greatest American, uh, Abraham Lincoln, was a firm believer in natural law and natural rights and, and uh, never failed to recall that the founding was a, a natural law founding. Um, Jefferson, the author of the Declaration of Independence, toward the end of his life, I believe in 1825, was asked uh, where he got the ideas for the Declaration, the basic ideas of the American founding. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. And among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And in reply, in a letter to Henry Lee, I think it was 1825, um, Jefferson said, uh, there was nothing original there, that I was giving the common sense of the matter as it strikes Americans. And it's rooted in what he called the, uh, the elementary books of right. And then he gave a few examples, and not just enlightenment figures like Locke and Sidney, but going all the way back to Plato and Aristotle and Cicero, that whole great 
tradition that begins in antiquity, goes up through the Middle Ages into the Enlightenment to the American founding. So it was a, a variety of influences. Now, the figures that we're talking about disagree among themselves about many things. Just think about the differences between uh, Plato and his great student, Aristotle. Aristotle didn't agree on everything with his teacher and very, very important points on which they disagreed. Uh, yet it's in those conversations, in that tradition, they, they both believed in what we would today call natural law. It's in that tradition that Jefferson found the basic ideas that became the common sense of the American people that he tried to give voice to uh, in, the, uh, in the Declaration. And you're right, Wes, to say that ours was a philosophical founding. Think about what binds Americans together as a people. Think about what makes our nation a unity, one nation, when we say one nation following Lincoln, we say under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. What is the foundation of our unity? Here's where American exceptionalism can be found. Because unlike the nations founded before, our nation is not founded on a commonality of blood or soil. We're not a blood and soil nation, nor are we a throne and altar nation like the European nations. We, we don't have uh, one religion. We have many religions. We're, we're not of one ethnicity. We're of many ethnicities and races. Um, e pluribus unum. Yeah. Out of that many, uh, we, we make one. Now, what's the foundation of the one? If it's not blood and soil or throne and altar, that's not how we integrate ourselves as a nation. What is it? It's those principles of the American founding, those philosophical principles, those principles of natural law and natural rights that we unite across the lines of racial or ethnic division, across the lines of theological disagreement that we unite in affirming. That's what makes us Americans, not blood and soil, not thrown an altar, the shared conviction in liberty and justice for all, the basic principles of natural law and natural rights, you see. And which is what the Bill of Rights is about. Yes, that's right. And how does it begin? Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people to assemble and petition the government for redress of grievances. Great principles of natural rights not given by the government. They're natural in the sense that they don't come from the government or some human or artificial source. We have them inherently. We hold them simply in virtue of our humanity. You know, today, yes. a lot of people claim to believe in human rights who don't. I, I, I don't think they're deliberately lying. They may think they believe in human rights, but they don't believe in human rights. If you believe in human rights, you believe there are certain fundamental principles of justice, certain rights that we have, not by gifts of the government, not because other people are willing to recognize them, not as conventions or privileges, but simply in virtue of our humanity. Take the most fundamental of all rights, the right to life. If there are any human rights, one of them has to be, the foundational one has to be the right to life. But if the right to life is in fact a human right and not just an artificial creation or a, a government gift, then anyone who is human possesses them. Any human being possesses them. And that means every human being from the moment one comes to exist as a human being has human rights. This is the real power of the pro-life movement's position. Because we know as a matter of biological fact that from the earliest embryonic stage all the way through to death, one is a human being, a member of the species Homo sapiens, 
an individual of the human family. And if there is any right to life, if anybody at any stage, at any age hold, holds that right in virtue of his or her humanity, then we have it from our coming to be. And we don't come to be on our birthday. We come to be nine months earlier. Right. And it's human exceptionalism, which is why people like Peter Singer, since we've talked about him, say, no, being human is not what's relevant. What matters are having certain attributes, what he calls being a person. And when you, when you move away from the objective sense of all that is required to have these natural rights is being human, and, and we don't have to measure, we don't have to, uh, to see who has more intelligence or who has greater abilities, then you, then you can have universal human rights. But when you say, it, no, I'm sorry, not life, uh, your rights don't matter simply merely because you're human, but because you have certain attributes, at that point, universal human rights becomes impossible to defend. And in fact, because because some people, some humans are not going to have that. And in fact, people like Peter Singer don't believe in universal human rights. And to his credit, he will say, I do not believe in universal human rights. Uh, one, one of the things I like about Peter is he's not a hypocrite. He That's true. He doesn't pretend to believe things he doesn't believe. You know, it's very fashionable, especially on the left where he lives, uh, to say, oh, I'm a great defender of human rights. Peter says, I don't believe in human rights. He's a utility. And I, I think the hard left doesn't believe in human rights. Oh, oh they certainly don't, something. but they so often claim to, and Peter does. I'll give you another good example of Peter's honesty. Um, you know, it's typical pro-abortion people so often say, oh, you know, uh, I believe I'm pro-choice because, you know, we don't know when life begins. and I don't want to impose my view of when life begins on, when human life begins on anybody else. Peter is the first one, say it to the students, he's the first one to say, that's silly. Of course, we know when human life begins. We, we know that abortion is the taking of a human life, right? We know elementary biology. We, we, we don't live in 764 before the rise of modern science, at least since the uh, 1820s when von Baer discovered the mammalian ovum. We have understood that human life begins with the fertilization and uh, establishing the, the zygote, the earliest uh, embryonic stage, and, and then continues uh, a, a, until uh, death, which may be 90 or 110 years uh, later. Um, so, so Peter says, of course, we know when human life begins. Of course, we know that the being killed in an abortion is a human being. But of course, there is where he draws this distinction between human being and person. But while he's wrong to draw that distinction, all human beings are persons. I could, I could give you the argument for why that's the case, but that's beside the point right now. What the point is that uh, he understands that the taking of human life in abortion must not be misrepresented as not killing or not killing a human being. He recognizes that it is killing and it is killing a human being, even if he thinks that it's justified to kill a human being before that human being becomes a person. Yeah, he does have that uh, honesty. And I think the reason why many uh, who support abortion rights don't is because they think it'll harm the cause. And having the outcome is more important than the principle that leads to the outcome. 
That's exactly right. I mean, he castigated, he being Peter Singer, castigated in a letter to the editor of the New York Times, Mario Cuomo, the late governor of New York, uh, the, the, the father of the most recent governor of New York who left in a scandal. Um, he castigated Mario Cuomo, who famously had claimed that although he was a Catholic and, of course, believed that abortion was wrong and believed that uh, the unborn child is a human being, that, that this was a purely religious belief and that he therefore couldn't impose his religion uh, on other people. Uh, Singer wrote a tough letter to the editor of the New York Times uh, uh, responding to Cuomo and said, no, it's not real. The idea that the child, the, the being killed in an abortion is, is a human being is not a religious idea. That's a matter of scientific fact. It's a, it's a question of whether that life has value or when that life has has uh, has value. Now there's honesty for you. Yeah, and you wrote a book called Embryo, co-authored uh, about that, uh, which we don't have time to get into. <laughs> oh, well, there's my response. Read the book, and you will see why I think it's a mistake, fundamental mistake, to distinguish human being and person, um, uh, or to, or to suppose that there are some human beings who are non-persons, who are not yet persons, like the unborn or the newborn who are no longer persons like people suffering from dementias, like Alzheimer's disease, or some people who, because of a congenital quote defect unquote, are not now never were and never will be, uh, persons. Uh, no, uh, although it, that may be the case that there are, uh, uh, persons who are not human beings, believers in God believe God is a person. Christians believe God is three persons, one God, three persons, uh, that there are persons who are not human beings. Uh, all human beings are are persons. Our our status as a person has to do with our nature uh, as a uh, human um, creature, or with our human nature. Yeah, you know, you've you've raised so many. I could go another hour because I, I this conversation has been very stimulating for me. I'd love to have you back. Uh, I'd so love to come uh, back. we'll we'll end it here with just one more question, and and I hope you will come back. What's next for Robbie George? <laughs> well, uh, who said that when you do what you love, you've never worked a day in your life? And I've, I've done what I've loved for my entire life, and I'm just going to keep on doing it. Uh, my most recent adventure was uh, working uh, closely with some wonderful colleagues here at Princeton to build a new national organization uh, called the Academic Freedom Alliance, the AFA. Um you can find us at www.academicfreedom.org. And this is an organization of professors from across the country, colleges and universities from California to Maine, and across the ideological spectrum. Uh, my friend Cornell West is a founding member. Of course, I'm a, I'm a member. Uh, Peter Singer actually is a, a, a member. There are conservatives and liberals and centrists and non-classifiables who are united in pushing back against the cancel culture. United in Good. defending freedom of speech on campus for ourselves as professors and for and for our students and for everybody who's involved in education. Of course, we believe in free speech way beyond the, the, the walls of the university, but we think it's especially important in the educational world to have freedom of speech and to defeat the cancel culture because without robust dialogue, without the ability to probe and prod and challenge and question, you cannot do education. Right. Well, that's terrific. And we're going to have, uh, when this posts, we'll have links to that and, and uh, some of the other articles you've written and some of your other, your own personal website and so forth. Oh, thank so, Robbie, you. Robbie, I, I will be inviting you back. And uh, thank you very much for being with me. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you, Wes. 
Thanks for listening to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. Discover all the good work of the Center on Human Exceptionalism by visiting discovery.org human. We can only do this work, speaking on behalf of human life, human thriving, and our exceptional place in this world and our cosmos, with your support. We invite you to make a one-time gift today and to consider starting a monthly gift to support the Center on Human Exceptionalism and this show. Wherever you're listening to Humanize, please take a moment to rate and review the show. You matter. Your actions matter. Be bold, be exceptional, and be back soon.